what right did I have to be writing checks at the time? <laughs> I was a PhD candidate at Stanford, so I hadn't finished my PhD. I had five years of work experience. And this guy, Mike Maples, had offered me a checkbook to write out of this made-up fund we called Floodgate. I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. There's this thing in venture capital called the Midas List. It's a list of the most successful venture capitalists, the ones who bring in the gold, thus Midas. And Miurico, co-founder at Floodgate, along with Mike Maples, is on that list already. But she's about to rocket up that list thanks to her early investment in Lyft, writing a check to Lyft founders John Zimmer and Logan Green. When Lyft goes public, presumably in just a matter of days or weeks from now, Anne Miurico will have likely turned a small investment into billions. What did you see early in Lyft that other people didn't see? Because you invested when the company was worth like $5 million. Right. It was, uh, so back in 2010, there were no real transportation startups and what was really interesting at the time was there were all these new ideas popping up. And 2008 to 2010 time period was a really interesting period where the financial markets had really suffered. And investors were largely in the fetal position, uh, as well as a lot of entrepreneurs. And so uh, it, I believe that it's in those moments that the truly original ideas emerge. And John and Logan came into my office at that time and were talking about transportation from two very different perspectives. Logan had become fed up with traffic. And as a kid, he grew up in LA. He hated traffic. And in college, he gave up his car to see if he could use public transportation largely to get around. And as part of that project, ended up on the transportation board of the county. And so he was really fascinated by transportation. And then John approached this from a hospitality question. He'd taken a class at Cornell, and one of his professors had pointed out, hey, when you have major changes in transportation, it actually changes the fabric, the social landscape. And he had shown how it impacted uh, the social landscape with canals, with railways, with highways. And the question that they posed was together, they were trying to figure out what happened when social, because Facebook was sort of this new thing, meets transportation. And their initial cut at it was selling a platform to universities to enable ride sharing. And really, this is carpooling, right? And uh, what I always loved about that initial pitch was there was this quote of, life gets better when you share the ride. And that was literally from a customer. And, uh, and when we looked around and said, you know, what other transportation startups are there? The only company that we knew of was Zipcar. And I think that was the attraction, right? It felt like it was a huge space. It was uh, a place where if something interesting happened, it would have massive ripple effects. And, and so that's what we wanted to get involved with. So you have young founders who have yet to prove themselves approaching Miyurico, who's only made one previous investment on her own. She's about to write one of the most important checks 
she'll ever write. What right did I have to be writing checks at the time? <laughs> I was a PhD candidate at Stanford, so I hadn't finished my PhD. I had five years of work experience. And this guy, Mike Maples, had offered me a checkbook to write out of this made-up fund we called Floodgate, right? It was our first fund. It's, you know, I've made one investment outside of Zimride at that time. So there was this question of, like, what right did I have I've opened up shop and I'm hoping someone's going to take a check from me. And here comes two guys. And it was funny. I was recently writing with with Logan about, you know, how, how great it is to have seen this journey this far. And he was joking. He said, hey, I, I acted like I had a lot of options back then, but you were really the only one. And I was like, I knew that. Um, but it was sort of w the way I see it. We both kind of grew up in the industry. I grew up as an investor alongside their growing up as entrepreneurs. Uh, and so we both kind of needed each other in that moment. And so, I, you know, you hear so often of investors making the bet on the entrepreneur. And I, I really believe in this case, it was just as much John and Logan taking a real bet on me. There seem to be Team Uber and Team Lyft. People feel strongly yeah. about one or the other. Is there an advantage to Lyft being the first mover in this as far as going to going public? I, I don't even think about it in that in that context. Um, and this goes back to the very early days of when Lyft first launched. When Lyft first launched, there was this concept that they were going to be the first peer-to-peer -peer, uh, ride-sharing experience. So Uber was a Uber Black experience. And I remember there are a few controversies at the time. One was, how would you have payments happen? Um, because it was sort of this gray area. And so if you remember in the early days, not only did you get it to sit in the front, you would fist bump the driver. You had the gigantic the cheesy mustache, mustache yes. in the front. Um, the other thing was that you would donate to the driver. You wouldn't actually directly pay them. You, there was an optional donation. Uh, and th that's sort of how how that experience started. And what I remember about that experience was that they were very committed to being different. And I have a really good friend, Christopher Lockhead, who is one of the best marketers that I've known. And he always said, don't be better, be different. Because different is memorable, different sticks, and different matters. And I love that because that to me is the Lyft story. When you know you're, you have a competitor that's being super aggressive and wants to take over the entire market, and you respond by thinking about culture and thinking about uh, how you're going to service the drivers and what's the experience that you want to deliver and the fact that you're peer-to-peer -peer and that it isn't a reaction a competitive reaction, but it is about who you are. Those are the things that that I think I'm most proud of. You said that was the second check. What was yeah. the first? Task Rabbit with Leah Buskey. Uh, very good. And then eventually there's the Ozdi, right? Yes. Um, he tells me that the CEO of Iazdi, yeah, yes, thank you very much, uh, Gurjit Singh, tells me he, you were waiting outside of his classroom yes. with a check. Yeah. 
He comes out of the classroom. Tell me that story. Yeah, so uh, I had met Gurjeet because one of the professors that I knew at Stanford had sent me four math papers and said, do you think there's business here? I should point out you have a PhD in mathematics yes. from Stanford. And yeah. so I, I read these papers and I said, oh, there's something really interesting in what he's doing. And so I, I met him at our office. He gave us a couple of demos. And one of the things that we were trying to figure out was where do you apply this incredible technology? What markets? Who are the customers? And so he spent a lot of time sort of thinking through what this might look like. And a few months into that endeavor of like coming in to meet with me and talking through different markets, I just became convinced that this was the company that I was supposed to fund. And I, I was saying to Mike at the time, who else is going to read these papers? No one else is going to really understand. I'm uniquely qualified to get this business, so therefore I deserve to write this check. And Mike said, why don't you go chase him down? And, uh, and so I literally grabbed a checkbook where I wasn't clear whether or not I was allowed to write checks of this size, but I wrote a Yosti. One million dollars, and I signed my name, <laughs> and I said, "I know that Gurjeet's at this class." So I stayed outside of that classroom until he walked out, and I said, "Gurjeet, I'll die a thousand deaths if you don't let me invest in your company." So here's a check, and I'll never forget it. He looked at me and he said, "And I don't even know what I'd do with that money." So. I'll promise that when the time comes, I'll take money from you, but let's figure out what we're going to do with the, the investment first. Walk me through what I need to know about the Lyft IPO. You've seen, you know, at the beginning of a football game, the analysts will say, all right, what we need to watch for is the defense, you know, limiting the offense to X number of yards and then the passing game. What am I looking for when Lyft goes public? What, what's the result you're hoping for? Yeah, and I have to be careful here because we're, we're in a quiet period. I, I think the, the major thing is it goes back to that initial story of why did we invest. Uh, so Lyft is really about this long story of what happens when fundamental shifts in transportation happen and how should we design transportation for the world that we live in rather than having transportation define it for us. And, and so what I, what I love about the vision for the future is that this kind of network transportation has the ability to create real human connections and through those experiences actually change the fabric of how our economy works. And I think we're going to start to see those ripple effects. And, and to me, like I'm a, I'm a real believer in that future vision. And John wrote this incredible manifesto a number of years ago about why they have Lyft. And what I loved about that story and then how you compare it to the founder's letter um, and then reflect back on that first pitch deck that was shown to me, those three things are actually very similar in the story of who Lyft is. And so as an investor, as a person who's been by the side of the founders for a really long period of time, those are the things that I reflect on. And those are the things that when I invested in 2010, I believed in and I still believe in today. Is there something you wish somebody would walk in the front door with? Hey, I have an idea about. 
oh, wow, there's a lot. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's one area that I've been thinking of even incubating my idea in is how do you reinvent uh, e-commerce as a mall on your phone? And there's actually a few few examples of companies that are trying to do this. Uh, but I, the way I envision it is I would want um, individuals actually to be curating product feeds and for me to be able to follow those individuals. Um, I think that's really important because shopping on your mobile phone uh, for things that are aspirational or inspirational um, is very, very hard. And so if you're going into Amazon and you know you're going to buy Cheese Whiz that day, then it's pretty easy to find. But if you kind of just want to be entertained, there isn't a really great lean back entertainment mechanism for shopping. So that that's an area that I'm endlessly fascinated by. I'm also really fascinated by how voice and audio is actually becoming increasingly uh, an attention space that we should own. And so um, I love the idea of having all of this incredible professional content for audio and voice, but not having a ton of user-generated content in that space. And so in the same way that consumer has evolved uh, on the web from having very professional content to then an explosion of user-generated content that then created the social movement. I wonder what's going to happen actually on the voice side as people are increasingly wearing headphones all the time and, you know, AirPods. And, and I think that that attention space is really interesting. And then the last that I'm really interested in is that I believe that uh, on the technical side, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning are at odds with privacy. And so because you need to, to train these incredible models, uh, you have to gather a ton of data on people, on things that have happened. And so that, that puts those systems at odds with uh, privacy. And, and so we believe just at Floodgate that in every sort of evolution of technology, a gigantic monopoly emerges. And you, you follow it from processing where you had DEC and IBM as these huge monopolies. Then, then software comes about as something that's really important as microprocessors emerge. And Microsoft then becomes this big uh, monopoly. And just as that starts to deteriorate because the web actually emerges again, then you have these data monopolies like Fang, right? Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. And the thing that I believe is that you actually will see someone emerge from this where they are able to become intelligent, not based on data monopolies, but at the edges. And so if you have technology that allows for privacy along with intelligence, then all of a sudden the data monopolies no longer have that much power. So that's an area that I'm spending a lot of time in terms of technical digging that, that I would love to see. You grew up in Palo Alto and went to Pali High School. You tell a story about being at a friend's house and that friend's dad walks in. Can you tell me that story again? Yeah. That was, um, uh, I was actually uh, coaching someone as part of our debate team. So I was... Uh, this was senior year, and I think this young woman was a uh, sophomore at the time. And uh, 
the very beginning of the year, the leaders of the, the team would go and individually sort of help support the younger members of the team. And I was doing this process of sort of bringing this young lady up to speed. And uh, her father appears, and her father was Steve Jobs. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember just sort of putting all of these things together and realizing who this person was. But to me, that was a very quintessential uh, Palo Alto moment. You were sitting in Steve Jobs' house and no idea you no were sitting. Idea, yeah. <laughs> Your parents put pressure on you. You went to Yale and then Stanford. They put a tremendous amount of pressure on you, as they, as many parents do. Yeah. You now have children. Are you? What kind of pressure are you going to put on them? And what expectations do you have from them? On my kids, um, you know, it's it's interesting because we've just had this college right. admission scandal, scandal come yes. out. Um, and I was I was just talking to my my son who is nine years old about whether or not he would rather me pay to have someone else take the test for him or would he rather mommy yell at him until he studied for the test and did well on that exam because of mommy yelling. And he thought about it for a second. He was like, I think I prefer mommy yelling. Um, I, you know, for, for me, it's, it's, there's a certain element of it that I think I, I've gotten from just having immigrant parents and the hopes and dreams that come along with that. Um, and I hope uh, on some level that I haven't ever lost that uh, because what I loved about my parents was that they, they wanted to succeed on their own and on their own terms. Um, and they wanted their kids also to have that capability. And in this world, I want my kids to have that same kind of experience of, hey, you have to work really hard. You have to figure things out on your own. Um, and it's not going to be easy, but you'll know at the end of that process that you did it because of yourself. Um, those are the things that I would want to keep. Uh, I also think that uh, some of the, the ways in which the world is changing actually makes it so that it's really hard to replicate that kind of education today and know that your kids will be successful. And part of it is because of automation. Part of it is how important technology is today. Uh, a lot of it is like what jobs will be in the future. And so the things that I worry most about for my kids is how could I help them know what they love to do and use that passion to then figure out the things that they want to learn so that they develop that innate curiosity, the desire to learn on their own, um, so that I don't have to yell at them to study for the SATs. You have a PhD in mathematics. Math I believe modeling, you're, yeah. Okay. Your mother was pressuring you to make sure to get that PhD. You are a very successful venture capitalist. Have you finished satisfying your parents? Are your parents like, okay, you've done it, or does it ever end? Um, you know, I think parents are never quite satisfied. I think, uh, at least mine aren't. Um, you know, my mom regularly Googles me and then will look on an image search and say, why, why is that the picture that is top ranked? Um, so those are the types of questions that I have to deal with now. Um, I think that... The things that my parents care now about is very different from when I was 18 or even 25 or 30. Uh, now they really do care about sort of where 
where is my life with respect to my kids and my family um, over the next 10 years? And do I have a really great relationship with my children? Like that's the the thing that my mom worries about most. She also worries about my health. So she wants to know if I exercised and if I am taking care of myself and if I'm eating well. Um, and so I feel like a lot of the, the questions about will we matter, those kinds of questions are not so prevalent anymore. And that's, that's nice to see because I feel like on some level, my mom doesn't worry about that anymore. You've been called the most powerful woman in startups. In fact, most articles refer to you as the most powerful woman in startups. Why are you the most powerful woman in startups? So the story behind that is that that title came out in an article really like eight to 10 years ago. And so it was a very different world. There weren't that many women in startups. So I think that's that's partially the reason why that that title came out. Um, you know, I don't I don't buy into who's the most powerful or uh, who, who's having the most impact. What I buy into is that actually there's a ton of women now in the startup world, in the venture capital world. And I love the fact that when I look at that, I kind of cringe a little bit because I look around me and I see incredible women doing incredible things today. Um, when I first started in venture capital, this was actually prior to my PhD. It was uh, at a venture capital firm for a couple of years. This is on the East Coast. I remember asking people around me if there were general partners who were women at venture capital firms. And most of the people around me couldn't name a woman venture capitalist at the general partner level. And so when I, when I look around me today, and in particular, I look at All Raise as a movement, and I see the number of women who are part of that group, who are general partners at venture capital firms, exchanging deals with one another, supporting one another, trying to figure out how to help accelerate each other's careers. That's really invigorating. Then I turn to even um, the initiative that I'm working on uh, with Chian Gong and Jenny Lefcourt, and it's called Founders for Change. And that's driven by founders who are very diverse, who also want to see not only diversity within their teams, but on their cap table and within their investors, you just see a whole different set of priorities becoming important, not only to the venture capital firms, but to the founders. And when it's important to the founders, I know that we're going to see increasing change actually back in the venture capital world. And Miurico of Floodgate, an early investor in Lyft who's about to see that company go public. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. If you're in the San Francisco area, that's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes and at PressHereTV.com.